You're listening to the Bible uncut and unfiltered. We believe the Bible doesn't need to be watered down or cleaned up to be understood. Our goal is to provide a healing place to discuss the questions you can't ask and the context you won't learn in church. I'm your host, Colin Connor. Now, on to the episode. The Bible is full of fun and interesting stories, the kinds of things that end up in children's Sunday school lessons. David and Goliath, Noah's Ark, Daniel in the lion's den. And then there are some parts that, well, they're just not quite as gripping as some of the other stories. This week, we have the honor of going through one of those passages. Genesis 10 isn't the kind of thing that ends up in your typical story Bible or Sunday school class. In fact, a lot of people like to gloss over it and act like it isn't even there. But out of the most unlikely of places, some of the best Bible study can be done. I mean, about what other chapter in the Bible could you say that Looney Tunes has affected the way people understand one of the characters? This week is going to be anything but dull. Get ready for Genesis 10, uncut and unfiltered. We have finished up the story of Noah last week, and for most people, the story goes directly from there to Abraham in chapter 12, with a brief stint at the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. Chapter 10 is often overlooked in that process because it is a long list of very hard-to-pronounce names, at least hard-to-pronounce from our modern English perspective. They would have been relatively common back in their time but they're not exactly the sort of things that you see on the list of top 10 most popular baby names this year. But Genesis 10 serves a key purpose as the pivot point between Noah's story and Abraham's story. You might remember from earlier on when we did our Genesis 1 through 6 series, and I believe it was the Stuff You Don't Know You Don't Know episode for that. I mentioned that Genesis is broken down into sections divided by the word tuladot, which is often translated, these are the generations of in English. So whenever you're reading Genesis and you see these are the generations of in English or Toledot in Hebrew, you can know that a new section is beginning. So the Toledot sections are pivot points that transition you from a previous story into a new one. They explain how the two stories are connected. So this is taking us from the story of Noah's life that we had in chapter 6 through chapter 9, and it is now moving on to Abraham, but rather than just doing a hard stop, it gives us a little bit of connection to show us the way that these two stories are intertwined. Now, I will not be going verse by verse through this chapter like I normally do, and the reason for that is because of all of the names that are in here. If I was just to start off going right off of verse 3, it would sound something along the lines of the sons of Gomer are Ashkenaz, Ripna, Togarma, the sons of Yavin are Elisha, Tarshkish, Kittim and Dodanim, and I don't think you want to hear another 20 plus verses of basically just names like that. So what we're going to do instead is spend a little bit of time here up front talking through the significance of this chapter and what exactly a genealogy like this would accomplish, what it would have meant to the people reading it in the ancient world. Because today, we just see this as a snooze fest. We want to get to the good stuff, we want to get to the action, we want to get to the stories that we are familiar with. But for an ancient people reading this, it would actually be a very significant chapter. Not the kind of thing that you skip over, because it is telling you something about the characters that are to come in the next story. 
And I will say that this is the type of episode that would be helpful to have a Bible available to you while you're listening. I realize that a lot of people may listen while they're driving or working, so that might not be the most practical thing. But if you are able to, I would recommend having a Bible with you for this. And keep it open to Genesis 10. That can be a Bible app. I definitely recommend uh, two different Bible apps. One is Lagos, and the other is YouVersion. Lagos is built mainly for desktop, and it can get very expensive with some of the features. But there is a free version available both on desktop and on mobile. And the free version will get you a couple of basic Bibles, but then if you use the paid editions, which again are quite expensive because the resources are incredible for it, you can access that both on mobile and on desktop. YouVersion is a free app that gives you access to a ridiculous amount of Bibles, and not just English ones, but across a spectrum of languages. So if you are looking for good Bible study software, I always recommend Lagos. I have to get that little plug in there. I use it all the time. I use it for my study. Sometime next year, I'm even looking to probably do a video explaining to you how I do Bible study and preparation for a podcast. And I would just walk through the steps, and that is essentially going to be all Lagos. So it's definitely something I recommend looking into if you are someone who does serious Bible study. But if you're just looking to have a Bible app where you don't have to have a hardcover Bible around, but you can just have it on your phone, version is definitely the way to go on that. So if you can have that available for Genesis 10 here this week, if not, it's not going to impair the experience too much. It would just help since there's a lot of names that you're not necessarily going to be familiar with, so that could help you to stay on track with where we are. But let's get started here, talking about the significance of chapter 10. All of these names are important here, because a lot of them do actually show up later on in the story. Now, you might not realize that right off the bat. If you're just reading through this, you might look at some of these names and say, I have no clue who these people are. They don't mean anything to me. I have never read the Bible and found the names Mitzrayim, Ludum, Ananim, Lechabim, and Naphtahim. <laughs> that just means nothing to me. But it would mean something to the people in an ancient world where these were still the people groups all around them. See, the Bible, or at least the Tanakh, the Old Testament, as many Christians call it, is the story of the Jewish people, written from their own perspective. Now, up until this point, it has been a broader story of humanity as a whole, because, well, it was going to get down to just one small family with Noah in chapters 6 through 9. But now that we're going to be broadening back out into humanity as a whole, we're actually going to start to narrow our focus into one particular family, and from that family, Israel as a nation will come. That is actually going to be beyond the scope of this podcast series. We'll likely do some more series in Genesis at a later point, but we are finishing this particular series up at chapter 11, which will actually be right before Abraham becomes a main character. He will be introduced, but we're not going to get too much into his story in this series. So all of that to say, many of these seemingly obscure names that show up in this chapter are actually important for later on in the story. The descendants of Shem are going to be people related to Israel. Today we have the term Semitic that's coming from the name Shem. It would be Shemite or Shemitic Semitic. We're going to have the descendants of Canaan that we talked about last week. Canaan's descendants are often called the Canaanites, and they show up quite a bit in future stories as well. And then we're going to have other antagonists of Israel that are mentioned. So the majority of these names are like the antagonists for Israel. They are not going to be the main characters, but they are going to play some role in Israel's story. 
and this list of names serves to introduce us to their characters while also giving us a clue about their relationship to the main characters of our future stories. J. Richard Middleton has an article on Biologos, and that is not related to Lagos Bible Software, a different site, but he has an article on Biologos that I have linked to in the notes, and he has some observations on this passage that I think are helpful. He notes that the genealogy is given as the sons of Noah, being Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But then the lineages of the three are given in reverse order. So we are first told about the descendants of Japheth, and then about Ham's descendants, and then about Shem's descendants. And he points out that that could seem a little puzzling or odd, until you realize that the last person named in this genealogy here in Genesis 10 is Shem. And the genealogy that immediately follows the Tower of Babylon story in chapter 11 begins with Shem. So you have a genealogy here in this chapter, and then next week we're going to touch on the one that ends chapter 11. Well, Shem ends this genealogy and begins the next one. So the Tower of Babylon story that you probably know is Tower of Babel. Find out why next week that's actually the Tower of Babylon. We'll put that plug in there. The Tower of Babylon story is a parenthesis within these two genealogies. So it's going to be its own little thing, but you have these two side by side, and Shem is the link between them. And that's not all, because the name Shem in Hebrew is actually just the word for name. So Middleton notes, we have a nameless people ambitiously trying to make a name for themselves. This is the Tower of Babylon incident in the next chapter. When God has already provided a Shem, a name, through the ordinary process of birth grounded in creation. And in contrast to the attempt to make a name for themselves, God will later promise to make Abraham's name great, a fitting outcome for a descendant of Shem, the one named Name. And despite the dead end of Babel, it is the line of Seth leading to Abraham through whom God intends to bring blessing to the nations of the world. He continues, The presence of symbolic names in the primeval history, Genesis 1-11, through suggests that we misread both the narratives and the genealogies if we treat each name as representing a distinct historical person. Now, let me repeat that because I realize that's something that's going to catch some people off guard here. But Middleton and many other scholars suggest that we misread both the narratives and the genealogies if we treat each name as representing a distinct historical person. Here's why. He says, certainly the names in the narratives are portrayed as individuals, but they are archetypal individuals. Rather than read the genealogies of Genesis 1-11 through 11, as if they were meant to recount accurately, by modern reckoning, every generation from creation to present, it is better to inquire about their intended function. When all the genealogies of Genesis 1-11 through 11 are taken together, it is clear that everyone listed is part of one human family. The picture of humanity, of which we are a part, is being held up to the readers of Genesis that we may better understand our own condition both blessed by God and cursed by sin. A beautiful articulation of this twofold truth is found in C.S. Lewis's novel, Prince Caspian. You come from the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, said Aslan, and that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. End of quote. Let me jump in here for a second and give some commentary on what Middleton is saying. We've talked previously about how genealogies in the Bible are not intended to restructure human history all the way back. It's pretty common in many circles of American Christianity to think that we can add up the ages of the people in the Bible. 
and come to some generic number of usually six to 10,000 years to describe the age of the Earth. And so we can go all the way back to creation and say the Earth is only six to 10,000 years old. But there are several problems with that that we have addressed in previous episodes, so I'm not going to go back into that here. But one of the main ones is that is not what genealogies in the ancient world did. Sometimes they skipped generations. Sometimes they added in generations. It was all about trying to prove some sort of greater point about the people you're talking about. So the end goal here is to describe Abraham and his descendants. And so we're trying to build up to him. And we'll find as we go through this episode that there are even points where numbers like six and seven figure very prominently in here because the author is focusing on very specific people in order to get a point across. People that he considers coming from a good family are given seven descendants that we focus on. People coming from a bad family are given six descendants that we focus on. The same thing happened in chapter four with the genealogies with Cain and Seth. That's not to say that they didn't actually have more kids, or that there couldn't have been more generations in between or before or after what's listed here. They're just trying to make some theological point about whether or not these people were a part of the covenant family. And so it's very possible with some of these names that come across archetypal, that they're actually stand-ins for a group of people. And this will happen a lot in this chapter, where we have names of people like Shem, Ham, Japheth, interspersed with names of groups of people. Like we have the Philistines and the Assyrians and some other groups here. Where it's like, well, I know that's not just a person. It could be a group of people. Now, some people might think that there was an original person starting that group of people and they had the same name of like Philistine or, or something like that. And that's how Philistia and the Philistines got their name. But that's not likely the case. It seems more so that this chapter has a lot going on, where it comes from different angles. Sometimes it mentions specific people. Sometimes it mentions groups of people. Sometimes it mentions people that seem like specific people, but their names are just a little too convenient. Like, for example, Nimrod. We'll get to him in a little bit here. And his name, most scholars think, means rebel. And he is depicted as a rebel, much like Cain. So it's kind of convenient that someone named Rebel would end up being a rebel. Did his mother know that about him when he was born? Was that a nickname that he was given later on in life and we've lost his actual name to time? Is that perhaps a pejorative term that was given to him by people who didn't like him, like the author of this chapter? Or could he perhaps be a mythic amalgamation of several characters who rebelled against Yahweh throughout the story? I don't particularly see the first one as possible, though I'm sure some people might think that maybe his mom just prophetically named him just right. If you take that view, you have to think that the majority of mothers in the Bible were prophets because most of these names end up being very accurate to the people's lives. So I think it's more likely that these are either nicknames that the people received later in life and that's just what they came to be known by, or these are amalgamations or archetypes of a particular type of person who is a rebel against God in Nimrod's case or whatever the case may be. In fact, Walton touches on this in the IVP Bible background commentary. He says some of the names in this list appear to be the names of tribes or nations rather than of individuals. In Hammurabi's genealogy, a number of the names are tribal or geographical names, so this would not be unusual in an ancient document. As a vertical genealogy, this list is simply trying to establish relationships of various sorts, end quote. 
The Net Bible notes also jump in and say it appears that the Table of Nations is a composite of at least two ancient sources. Some sections begin with the phrase the sons of, B'nai in Hebrew, while other sections use begat or yalad in Hebrew. It may very well be that the sons of list was an old bare bones list that was retained in the family records, while the begat sections were editorial inserts by the writer of Genesis reflecting his special interests, end quote. So this is a good example of why I was saying it could be helpful to have a Bible available to you while you're listening to this, because I'm not going to go verse by verse through here, but it is something you would notice as you look at this chapter. You have certain sections that say the sons of, and then other sections that say begot. And those two don't usually overlap. You usually either have a genealogy going from sons to fathers, the son of, 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 moving upwards, or you have something like begot or fathered, where it's saying this person fathered this person, this person fathered this person, this person fathered this person, on down. So you either have it from the sons moving up or from the fathers moving down. You don't usually have them combined. And you have that here. For example, verse 4 says the sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, Dodanim. But then if you go just a little bit further down in verse 8, you have Cush begot Nimrod. And it just keeps switching back and forth because you have some of the begots in here. But then if we go even a little bit further down, by the time we get to verse 20, you have these are the sons of Ham. So we're back to doing it that way. So it's all smushed together and a mess in this chapter. Some scholars think that it was probably two separate lists that were then editorialized into one big list as we know it today in this chapter. Now, if you were to read this start to finish, you would find 70 names of people listed here in this table of nations as descendants of Noah. And that is significant because 70 becomes a prominent number in the Bible. 70 was the number of people in Jacob's family who went down to Egypt at the end of Genesis. It's also the number of elders that are appointed by Moses to lead Israel in Exodus. And it matches the 70 gods of the divine council in Canaanite mythology. And that one in particular, even though it is never explicitly stated this way in the Hebrew Bible, it seems to very much be embedded within the text. And we talked about that a little bit when we did the Sons of God episode talking about the, the world behind Genesis 6. I believe that was episode 11 for reference, talking a little bit about the divine council there. So 70 shows up a good bit in the Bible and it becomes very significant. So the fact that there are 70 nations or people groups mentioned here in this chapter plays in with that idea of 70 on the divine council. Because in Canaanite mythology, you had these 70 sons of God that were under one big God, and those 70 gods ruled over different ethnicities of people. And so there were basically 70 ethnicities, or a lot of times our Bibles will say nations, but it's not nations in the way that we think of today. It was more just people groups. Actually, the idea of nations that we have today is very modern. Throughout most of human history, your nationality was judged by what people group you were a part of, and the boundaries of that could change over time. Now, depending on what part of the world you live in, that still may be the case today. There are several parts of the world that are still embroiled in conflicts where rule of a particular region can change at a moment's notice, and sometimes the boundaries of those regions can change as well. But for a good bit of the world, boundaries of the nations have mostly been set for the last couple hundred years. And particularly after the world wars, once we start getting these massive councils of nations involved, a lot of times they help to 
establish the boundaries of different people groups. And today it just makes sense to us. It's second nature. You can look on Google Maps. You can pull up a map, a globe, what have you, and you can see the shapes of the countries, so much so that many of them would be recognizable simply by their shape. But through most of human history, that was not the case. The boundaries were much more fluid. And it makes sense. They didn't have the technology or the resources to be able to figure out, okay, here is exactly where this part of our people group's land ends. It was very fluid. And your nationality was not so much determined by the country that you were a part of, because you didn't really have countries. You just had tribes all over the place. And some tribes got bigger and became empires or mini empires. But you didn't really have countries the way that we think of them today. That is actually kind of a modern concept. So even though we call this the table of nations, it's more the table of people groups, the table of ethnicities, I suppose that you could say. It's even good to realize that this is not racial distinctions. Race is another modern concept, and this one's only uh, roughly 450 years old, where we're trying to group people mainly by the color of their skin and maybe a few other characteristics. Here in America, that is extremely common. If we're trying to describe someone that we talk to in the day, we might say, oh, he was a white guy, or she was a black lady, or they were Asian, or, or what have you. That was not the way that most people talked about people groups up until about 450 years ago. That is a very modern concept to divide people up by black, white, Asian, Native American, that sort of thing. That was not common at all. You more so did it by your lineage. Because if you say someone is black, well, the color of the skin doesn't really tell you where they're from. They could be black and be from any number of countries nowadays because of the transportation that we have. You can't guarantee that someone immediately comes from Africa just because of a particular color of skin. Same thing with someone with Asian features. You can't say, oh, they're automatically Asian just because of these facial features. They could very well be American. Their family might have been here in this country for a couple hundred years. So the race categories kind of break down because they are just so broad, and a lot of times they're also rooted in racism. And it's kind of something that a lot of academic professionals are trying to avoid using those sorts of terms. Ethnicity is a little bit closer to what's going on here in this table of nations, and it can be a little more helpful too. Because you could look at me and see that I am white, but that doesn't mean a whole lot. Because I could still be from just about anywhere in the world, and particularly English-speaking parts of the world. That doesn't help you. But if I can say that I have a good bit of Irish blood in me, well, that helps you to understand my ethnicity, where I came from. Even though I did not personally come from Ireland, that was several generations back. We were actually O'Connors, and we dropped the O coming over to Ellis Island. So when you see nations in the Bible, anywhere in the Bible, not just this chapter, don't think about nations. Oh, okay, Germany, France, England, America, China. That's not what it's talking about. Think about people groups, tribes, ethnicities, like you might have Irish, Scottish, Mexican, Native American, Indian. You're getting closer at that point to what this is talking about. It's talking about people groups who have distinct cultural characteristics. And back then, they would have been grouped in a particular location. But that was just because you didn't really retain your identity as, say, a Philistine if you went off and lived in Egypt. You would become an Egyptian because that was their land. Today, we have the ability to travel much faster and much easier. 
So I can still be an American, even if I'm over in a different country, even if I'm over in that country for a couple of years or for a lifetime, you know, I might still consider myself an American because I'm able to retain connection to my homeland through media that we have today. So there are a lot of ways that our modern idea of nations does not fit this ancient idea of nations. Okay, I say all of that to get back to the idea of the Divine Council, because in the ancient Near East, you had this idea of a Divine Council, particularly in Canaanite religions, where you had a god that was over the 70 other gods, and he appointed one of each of those gods to rule over each people group. So again, not nations like Germany, France, Italy, Mexico, what have you, but actually the people groups, like Irish, Scottish, Mexican, Native American, so forth and so on. And while that sounds unfamiliar to many Christians, it is actually the idea that the Bible is working off of. And there are some passages, this is what we got into in uh, episode 11, where it suggests that God, Yahweh, as we know him in the Bible, had a divine council. And it is implied that there were 70 of them, and he appointed one of these supernatural small g gods over each people group in order for them to rule over them, to bring order into those people groups, basically contracting out rule over those people for himself. And then he was going to focus just specifically on this one family from the line of Shem, um, beginning with the man Abraham. And we'll talk more about that next week because the Bible suggests that that happened at the Tower of Babylon. So hold on to your horses with that. I know that can be a lot to wrap your mind around when that's not what you're familiar with. So I wanted to introduce it again here this week so that when I touch on it next week, it won't be a total shock to you. There's an article by Conrad Schmidt called Who Wrote the Torah? And I've linked to this in the show notes as well. It has some really interesting information regarding this particular passage, even though the entire article is not actually about this passage. But he notes that in 539 BCE, the Babylonian Empire was overthrown by the Persians after which the Persians ruled the entire ancient world as it was known in that part of the globe for the next 200 years. Persian rule was perceived by many people in the Levant, in this area of the Middle East, as peaceful, with the era seen as a quiet one, where various people could live according to their own culture, language, and religion. In the Hebrew Bible, nearly every foreign nation is addressed with very harsh curses, except for the Persians, probably due to their tolerant policy toward those who they subdued. In the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, we can locate some indications of Persian imperial ideology. A very telling piece is the so-called Table of Nations in Genesis 10. This text explains the order of the world after the flood, and it structures the 70 people of the globe according to the offspring of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, including three nearly identical refrains, Genesis 10, 2, and 5, the sons of Japheth in their lands with their own language, by their families, by their nations, Genesis 10.20, these are the sons of Ham, by their families, by their languages, in their lands, and their nations. And Genesis 10.31, these are the sons of Shem, by their families, by their languages, in their lands, and by their nations. At first glance, these texts may not look very interesting, but they are quite revolutionary, insofar as they tell us that the world is ordered in a pluralistic way. See, after the flood, God intended humanity to live in different nations, with different lands and different languages. Genesis 10 is probably a Persian period text reflecting this basic conviction of Persian imperial theology. The same ideology is also attested in the Behistian inscription, which was disseminated widely throughout the Persian Empire. 
The Persian imperial inscriptions declare that every nation belongs to their specific region and has their specific cultural identities. This structure results from the will of the creator deity. Every people should live according to his own tradition and its own place. This is a radically different political view when compared to the Assyrians and Babylonians, both of whom strove to destroy other national identities, especially by means of deportation. The Persians deported no one, and they allowed people to rebuild their own sanctuaries, such as the temple in Jerusalem that the Babylonians had destroyed. Once again, though, Genesis 10 is not merely a piece of Persian imperial propaganda. It also includes important interpretive changes. Specifically, it is not the Persian king who determines world order. Rather, the God of Israel allots every nation its specific place and language. Of course, the Pentateuch eventually makes clear that Israel has a specific function in the world, but it is important to see that the Bible acknowledges and allows cultural and religious variety in the world. These examples highlight how the Bible interacts with imperial ideologies from the ancient Near East, a point that is crucial to see if we are to reconstruct its formation. End of quote. So Schmidt's point is that a lot of ancient empires would completely try to destroy their opponents. If they defeated you, they would wipe you out, deport you to a different land, and just completely try to remove any leftover bits of your culture and heritage. The Persians, however, were different. They realized that if you wanted to keep these people that you have conquered from being completely demoralized, you have to allow them to retain bits of their culture. And so the Persians wouldn't even deport. They would allow them to live on the land under Persia and basically just pay taxes and agree to be living under the laws of Persia. That was a very radical way of viewing it, but they had this belief system that everyone belongs in their own land. We should not be taking people out of their land and placing them somewhere else forcibly, which is actually pretty progressive and honestly better than America has treated several people throughout its brief history. So the point that Schmidt is making then is that Israel coming back to their land from Babylonian control once the Persians are now in control, they are taking these Persian ideas and adding them to their sacred texts of saying that God has ordained for these specific people to be in these specific regions under these specific deities. It's an interesting idea, and I can definitely see the connection there. Now talking about some other traditions from other nations, Let's talk about some overlap that happens between this passage and some other traditions. The chapter here only mentions the three sons of Noah that we are familiar with. However, there are several other traditions that say that Noah had more children after Shem, Ham, and Japheth after the flood. And there are several interesting traditions, particularly around a fourth son of Noah. He shows up in the Quran, where we don't know his name in that story, but he actually refused to go on board the ark with Noah. And instead, he tried to climb up a mountain to escape the flood, but he was drowned. There are some versions of the story that give him the name Yam or Kanaan, which is very interesting because those sound both like Ham and Kanaan. Interesting. Supposedly, there's also an Irish myth that suggests Noah had a fourth son named Bith, who, for whatever reason, was not welcome on the ark. And so he decided to leave Noah and the family and try to colonize Ireland, but instead died in the flood. There's English traditions dating back to the 800s of this common era, trying to say that Noah had a fourth son named Scepha, and he was the ancestor then of the people in that region. 
there's an Arabic version of the story that says the fourth son was named Banatir. And that gets interesting because that story says that Bonatir then taught Nimrod astronomy. Now, nothing in the biblical text specifically says that Nimrod was familiar with astronomy. But as we'll see in a few minutes here, there are a lot of traditions that suggest he was a very powerful astrologer. And given the consistent witness to that tradition, that may very well be possible. There's another story from roughly 1250 of the Common Era from Martin of Opava, a Dominican archbishop, and he suggested that the fourth son of Noah was actually Janus, the Roman god, who then went to Italy and, interestingly enough, in this tradition as well, basically invented astronomy and taught it to Nimrod. So you have all kinds of traditions from the last 3,000 years all across the world taking this text and personalizing it to the people groups. And this is people trying to find a sense of purpose and significance from these stories for their own time and for their own people. So even though these traditions aren't necessarily considered sacred scripture, there is something holy in people trying to find themselves in these stories and getting some significance out of that. Now, before we move into the verses specifically, I also want to mention that the Septuagint, the Greek translation that Jesus and the disciples were familiar with, is slightly different than what we have in most English Bibles here. Only a few differences, then they're very minor. One is that Japheth is given an eighth son. In the story, he's only given seven, but in the Greek version, he has an eighth. There is an extra generation added between Arpachshad and Shelah, and then there is an eighth son given to Joktan as well. So most English Bibles will follow the standard Hebrew Masoretic reading here, but it's worth bringing up that there are some different traditions that vary slightly in this passage. Nothing too major, just the addition of three extra people, which kind of throws off the 70 number that is pretty purposefully chosen for this passage. So I kind of lean toward just the 70 that we have going on here, but there is that other tradition that is worth knowing about. So let's start actually looking at some of the verses here. And again, we're not going verse by verse, but I do just want to pull out a few things because there are some really interesting things that we can get into here. For example, Japheth, one of the righteous sons of Noah, as Noah declares in the previous chapter, is listed as having seven sons. Now, that should be significant to you. That should be, oh, of course, the good guy in the story is given seven sons. However, we only focus on two of them. So we're given the names for seven sons of Japheth, but then when it branches off, we're only told about the lines from two out of those seven. One of them is Gomer, and we're given three sons that he had, and then the other one is Javan, and we're given four sons that he had. So you have a guy who has seven sons, we focus on two of those sons, one that had three, one that had four, and that adds to seven. These are the times that you just kind of have to shake your head and laugh at the creativity of the biblical authors and how they wove these little details in here that so often get missed. But they are some of my favorite parts of the Bible. Now, talking about the name Japheth, last week we mentioned that there was a very clear play on words in Hebrew with the verb for enlarge, how God was going to enlarge the reach of Japheth. Interestingly enough, there is a Greek tradition that names their ancestor as Iektos, which sounds and looks a good bit like Japheth if you're using the Y sound for the J. So you'd have Japheth and Yaptus. Pretty uh, close there, and it would fit the region that Japheth's descendants go to here in this story. 
Madai is listed as one of his descendants, and that would become the ancestor of the Medes. And we hear that once we get to like the book of Daniel, and they talk about the Medes and the Persians being together. Verse 4 brings up Tarshish. And this is a good example of how you have names of people interspersed with people groups and places. Now, there could have been someone named Tarshish at some point in time, but Tarshish is generally considered to be a place, and it is often believed to be in Spain. Now, if this place name sounds familiar to you, it's probably because of the story of Jonah. That is by far its most well-known occurrence in the Bible, because God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, which was in the east, and Jonah decides, I'm going to go as far west as I possibly can to get away from the Ninevites. And the place that he could think of that was furthest west was Tarshish. So most people think that was in Spain, which would have been the very, very edge of the known world for these people at this time. But it is significantly farther out than any of the other place names that are listed here in chapter 10. The majority of them stay just within the Middle East, going a little bit into the north of Africa and a tiny bit into the south of Europe, basically just the tip of Italy. So Spain would by far be the furthest out if that is this Tarshish that is mentioned here. Some people think that this could actually be more into Italy than Spain, but I think most would put it as the outlier there in Spain. Now, this is important to bring up because when we see talk of people spreading over the entire world here in the Bible, we have to remember that the word earth can just mean land or region. These people did not have an understanding of the world as we know it today. When you see the word world or earth in the Bible, don't think about a globe, because they would not have been thinking about a globe. They viewed the Earth as a flat, disc-like place that had land in the center, water all around, and then like a snow globe dome over top. That was just the ancient cosmology, the way that they viewed the world. So they did not know about North and South America. They didn't know about most of Asia. They didn't know about the islands in the Pacific. They didn't know about the far reaches of Europe. They may not have even known about how far down Africa went. So when you see world or earth or something like that in the scripture, remember that this is talking about the region of the Middle East that the biblical authors knew. So this is not trying to establish for us the genealogy of every single person who lives in the earth today. The point of this text is not for you to go, okay, where did my ancestors come from? And let me see, did I come from the line of Shem, Ham, or Japheth? That's not the point, because there are people groups not accounted for here. Even within the ancient world, there are people groups that weren't accounted for here, because they were trying to tell a theological history. They wanted to get 70 in particular, so there are very specific ones that they pick that become significant to the story, and there are also other ones that they leave out, because that's not part of the story that they're trying to tell. Now, that does not mean that the Bible is lying, it doesn't mean that it's inaccurate history. This is not history in the modern sense as we like to think of it. This is ancient history, which often has a theological bent, some point that they're trying to make. So keep that in mind. This is not to be read like some ancient version of Ancestry.com. This is just trying to tell the story of how we get from Noah to Abraham. So you're not going to find mentions of people groups in the southern parts of Africa or the eastern parts of Asia or the Americas. You're not going to get that because they didn't know about that. To them, this was the world that existed. So you have these people spread all out around this area because it was the far fringes of the region that they knew. That's why you have something like Tarshish being mentioned here and nothing further out. Well, because to them, that was as far as they knew to go. Now, verse 4 also mentions the Kittim. 
and uh, a lot of scholars think that this could be the region of Cyprus and probably connected to early Roman establishments. Verse 4 in most English Bibles will end with a group called the Dodanim, but some manuscripts have Rodanim. Either way, it doesn't change much. It's just a one letter off and kind of a nerdy debate about which one it should be. Verse 5 says, By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, everyone after his tongue, after their families, in their nations. Now, when it says isles, that does not mean islands, that means coasts. So it's saying this is the border of the land of the Gentiles. And when you have that word Gentile show up in scripture, that is anyone who is not a Jew. Remember, this is a story of the Jews, written by the Jews, for the Jews. So everybody else is lumped into one big category called Gentile. So if you don't have Jewish blood in you, you are a Gentile. And uh, this verse is saying that by these people groups, this is how the non-Jewish people divvied up their land. And it's interesting that this seems to reference specifically the descendants of Japheth as the Gentiles, because we haven't gotten to the descendants of Ham yet, and they are not in this passage called Gentiles. So even though it is kind of a catch-all term, here it is the descendants of Japheth that are called Gentiles, and it's more so the descendants of Ham that are lumped in Canaanites and a couple other large groups like that. So that's kind of interesting, even though it seems that later on as scripture went, a Gentile just became a term for anyone who wasn't Jewish. I will point out as well that here in verse 5, you'll see that it says the Gentiles were divided in their lands, everyone after his tongue, after their families, after their nations. Now this word tongue is the word that is usually used to describe languages. And you'll realize that this comes before the Tower of Babylon story that we'll get to next week. Most people who are familiar with these stories would say that the earth all had one language that everyone spoke, and then at the Tower of Babylon, God confused the languages, and so there were a bunch of different languages after the Tower of Babylon, and that's why we all speak different languages today. Now, next week, we'll talk a little bit about why that may or may not actually be the case. But notice here, again, just looking at the text as we have it in front of us, this is talking about a division of languages before the Tower of Babylon happens. It says that by these people groups, were the coasts of the Gentiles divided, everyone after his tongue. So this is talking, even before the Tower of Babylon incident, that people groups were divided up by the languages that they spoke, and that was determined by the families that they came from. So I suppose this is a little bit of a teaser for next week's episode. You'll have to come back next week and find out why the Tower of Babylon may not actually be talking about the dividing of languages as we tend to think of it. But this is just a little bit of a teaser into that to show that there were actually multiple languages even before that, and that was a way that people divided up at this time. So if you have questions about what then the significance of the Tower of Babylon thing was, come back next week. We'll get to it then. Verse 6 picks up the sons of Ham. Now, his son, Canaan, or Canaan, is going to have 12 descendants listed. And that's significant because they're going to cause trouble in the rest of the story for the 12 sons of Israel. So again, here we have the biblical authors having fun with the numbers. We look at a passage like this and think it's a snore fest with a bunch of names. The biblical authors see a way to weave in this incredible theology just by the numbers that they pick and the amount of children that they choose to tell the story of. Really, really fascinating. And this is top tier Bible study material. This is the stuff that we should be looking for, not the kinds of stuff that usually get focused on in most sermons or commentaries, at least for me. I mean, this is the stuff that makes me appreciate the Bible more. 
the IVP uh, commentary notes on this, that there's a common theme in the genealogy of the Hamites, which is their close geographical, political, and economic importance to the people of Israel. These nations serve as major rivals and literally surround Israel. This is me stepping in. So as you read these verses that describe the descendants of Ham and Canaan, they're forming a circle around the land of Israel. Egypt, Arabia, Mesopotamia, Syria, Palestine. Gang back to Walton and IVP. Most important here is the political placement of groups within the Egyptian sphere, Cush, Put, Mitzrayim, and his descendants, and the Canaanite sphere, various peoples like the Jebusites and the Hivites. And interestingly, several are classified ethnically as Semitic people, Canaanites, Phoenicians, and Amorites. Now, there's a particular descendant of Ham that I want to focus on for a second, and that is Mitzrayim. Basically, every English translation that you can find will say in verse 6 that the sons of Ham were Cush, Mitzrayim, Phut, and Canaan. But Mitzrayim is actually the Hebrew word for Egypt. Throughout the entire rest of the Bible, with only one exception, and that's First Chronicles 1, this word Mitzrayim is translated as Egypt. Now, First Chronicles 1 is translated Mitzrayim as well, because that is another form of this genealogy. First Chronicles 1 is a genealogy that kind of smushes together all of the genealogies that we've had up until this point, and then we get into some more with the royal line of Israel there. But Mitzrayim is just the Hebrew word. So when you have that here in Genesis 10 and First Chronicles 1, it's not even a translation. It's really a transliteration where they've just taken the Hebrew letters and replaced them with English letters. So that can be misleading. I kind of wish that they had just translated this as Egypt because there are other place names here. And when you say Mitzrayim, well, no one knows what Mitzrayim is unless you really know Hebrew. It, it even took me a while after I had learned Hebrew and Mitzrayim was one of my vocab words that I learned pretty early on. But it still took me a while to make the connection that this is the same word. So maybe that doesn't make a huge difference for you, but I think it's important connection because Egypt becomes such an important character, if you will, then the nation as a whole plays such an important role later on in the story when we get to Exodus. So I think it's important that we see how it began here in this chapter. Now Put, or sometimes called Phut, P-H-U-T or P-U-T, he kind of disappears after this, and it's it's weird because a lot of these people listed here we get in other portions of the Bible or even just in a couple other genealogies in the Bible. But Put, he's, well, I guess, Kaput. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was bad. Um, but we are given brief genealogies for these other people, like we're told a little bit about the descendants of Cush, a little bit about the descendants of Mitzrayim, and a little bit about the descendants of Canaan, or Canaan. Uh, but we're not told anything about the descendants of Put. So for whatever reason, he is just completely left off there. And his name only shows up six other times in the rest of the Bible. Now, let's have another fun instance of Bible math going on here. Because verse 7 lists the sons of Cush. And you have Seba, Havelah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteka. That's five. But remember, this is the line of Ham, the bad guy from the previous story. So, of course, we can't leave him with just having five descendants through this son, Cush. We have to give Cush a bonus sixth son. Go figure, just like Cain's line in chapter 4 had six generations mentioned, now in the grandchild line of Ham, we have to add a sixth kid. And this kid is quite the problem. His name is Nimrod. 
Nimrod is a very colorful character, and I love talking about him. He is actually one of my favorite Bible characters to talk about, because the story of how he went from the character that he is in the Bible to the way that we think of him today is absolutely wonderful and unparalleled in all of biblical scholarship. This is where I get to talk about Looney Tunes and the Bible in the same sentence. Okay, today, if you hear the name Nimrod, it's probably going to be used as an insult. It's not very common anymore, but there is a precedent in American culture of calling someone Nimrod if you think they're an idiot. Now, if you read the biblical story, there is nothing to suggest that the biblical Nimrod was an idiot. If anything, he was a very powerful person, and later tradition has him being very smart, often the person to invent astronomy and dabble in astrology as well. So how do we go from a genius warrior king, as depicted in the Bible, to being a stand-in insult for an idiot? Well, this is where we have Looney Tunes to thank. Now, in the 1800s or so, there are a couple of instances of people using the name Nimrod that are kind of insulting, but they tend to be sarcastic. It's something related to hunting, because Nimrod is called a mighty hunter before the Lord. So you might call someone who fancies themselves to be a better hunter than they actually are a Nimrod. Like if you had someone who thought that they were really good at playing piano and you said, keep it up, Mozart, or something along those lines. That's basically the idea of how the term was used. And then along comes Mel Blanc, and he does the 1948 episode of Looney Tunes called What Makes Daffy Duck. And in it, Daffy is trying to escape a fox and Elmer Fudd as they're trying to kill him for duck season. Over the course of the episode, Daffy characteristically outwits both of them rather amusingly, and at one point, he calls Elmer Fudd his poor little Nimrod. And that was because he was making fun of his hunting abilities. So just like Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord, Elmer Fudd was trying to be a mighty hunter, but was really just making a fool of himself. And this became cemented in public consciousness after a few years when another Looney Tunes episode came out, this time called Rabbit Every Monday, and Yosemite Sam and Bugs Bunny are going at it, and Bugs calls Yosemite Sam a little Nimrod. So again, the idea is someone who is trying to be a great hunter, but they fail miserably. So because of the prominence of those cartoons, it became common for the word Nimrod to mean an idiot. All off of a rather astute and obscure Bible reference from Mel Blanc and Warner Brothers in the 40s and 50s. It is hilarious to me how this pop culture icon was able to completely change public persona of a little-known Bible character just by those couple of references that then got taken out of context. See, I told you, Bible study is not boring. It can be really fun. Now, what we have about Nimrod is very little in the text. In fact, here's the entirety of what we have, starting in verse 8. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before Yahweh. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before Yahweh. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, or Babylon, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Asher, and builded Nineveh, and the city of Rehoboth, and Kalah, and resin between Nineveh and Kalah, the same as a great city. And that's it. That's what we've got. Five verses that talk about Nimrod and his legacy. However, he gets quite the storyline from later traditions. 
Some traditions have Nimrod as the first person ever to wear a crown after he saw one in a vision that he had. A lot of people will think that he was one of the first kings over a people group. So that's kind of where that comes from. There's a rather interesting story in both Jewish and Islamic lore about a time when Nimrod and Abraham go head to head in a debate. And it, it's kind of this good versus evil. Some would even say monotheism versus polytheism debate. And I'm just reading off of Wikipedia here, the summary of this, so I will link this in the show notes as well. You can find out more about some of these stories. But here's their summary of this story about Nimrod. A portent in the stars tells Nimrod and his astrologers of the impending birth of Abraham. Should be sounding kind of like another Bible story that we know about, particularly at the start of the New Testament. Interesting. And this Abraham would put an end to idolatry. Nimrod, therefore, orders the killing of all newborn babies. That should also sound like that same story, and probably another one you might think of from Exodus. However, Abraham's mother escapes into the fields and gives birth secretly. At a young age, Abraham recognizes God and starts worshiping him. He confronts Nimrod and tells him face to face to cease his idolatry, whereupon Nimrod orders him to be burned at the stake. In some versions, Nimrod has his subjects gather wood for four whole years so as to burn Abraham in the biggest bonfire the world had ever seen. Yet when the fire is lit, Abraham walks out unscathed. In some versions, Nimrod then challenges Abraham to battle. When Nimrod appears at the head of enormous armies, Abraham produces an army of gnats, which destroys Nimrod's army. Some accounts have a gnat or mosquito enter Nimrod's brain and drive him out of his mind. In other versions, Nimrod repents and accepts God, offering numerous sacrifices that God rejects, just like with Cain. Other versions have Nimrod give to Abraham as a conciliatory gift the giant slave Eleazar, whom some accounts describe as Nimrod's own son. Now, the Bible also mentions Eleazar, but does not give those same details. Continuing on, still other versions have Nimrod persisting in his rebellion against God or resuming it. Indeed, Abraham's crucial act of leaving Mesopotamia and settling in Canaan is sometimes interpreted as an escape from Nimrod's revenge. Accounts considered canonical place the building of the tower many generations before Abraham's birth, as in the Bible, also in the Book of Jubilees. However, in others, it is a later rebellion after Nimrod failed in his confrontation with Abraham. In still other versions, Nimrod does not give up after the tower fails, but goes on to try storming heaven in person in a chariot driven by birds. The story attributes to Abraham elements from the story of Moses' birth, the cruel king killing innocent babies, with the midwives ordered to kill them, and from the careers of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who emerged unscathed from the fire. Nimrod is thus given attributes of two archetypal, cruel, and persecuting kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh. Some Jewish traditions also identified him with Cyrus, whose birth, according to Herodotus, was accompanied by portents, which made his grandfather try to kill him. A confrontation is also found in the Quran between a king, not mentioned by name, and Ibrahim, and Ibrahim, Arabic for Abraham. Most Muslim commentators assign Nimrod as the king. In the Quranic narrative, Ibrahim has a discussion with the king. The former argues that God is the one who gives life and causes death, whereas the unnamed king replies that he gives life and causes death. Ibrahim refutes him by stating that God brings the sun up from the east, and so he asks the king to bring it from the west. The king is then perplexed and angered. The commentaries on the surah offer a wide variety of embellishments on the narrative. One by Ibn bin Kathir 
a 14th century scholar, adding that Nimrod showed his rule over life and death by killing a prisoner and freeing another. Now, whether or not conceived as having ultimately repented, Nimrod remained in Jewish and Islamic tradition an emblematic evil person, an archetype of an idolater and a tyrannical king. In rabbinical writings up to the present, he is almost invariably referred to as Nimrod the Evil. Nimrod is mentioned by name in several places in the Baha'i scriptures, including the Kitab Khan, the primary theological work of the Baha'i faith. There it is said that Nimrod dreamed a dream which his soothsayers interpreted as signifying the birth of a new star in heaven. A herald is then said to have appeared in the land announcing the coming of Abraham. Nimrod is also mentioned in one of the earliest writings of the Bab, the herald of the Baha'i faith, citing examples of God's power, he asks, has he not in past days caused Abraham, in spite of his seeming helplessness, to triumph over the forces of Nimrod? The story of Abraham's confrontation with Nimrod did not remain within the confines of learned writings and religious treatises, but also conspicuously influenced popular culture. A notable example is Cuando el Rey Nimrod, When King Nimrod, one of the most well-known folk songs in Ladino, the Jewish-Spanish language, apparently written during the reign of King Alfonso X of Castile. Beginning with the words, When King Nimrod went out to the fields, looked at the heavens and the stars, he saw a holy light in the Jewish quarter, a sign that Abraham, our father, was about to be born. The song gives a poetic account of the persecutions portrayed by the cruel Nimrod and the miraculous birth and deeds of the Savior, Abraham. End quote. And Wiki goes on to list a handful of other traditions that include Nimrod or someone that commentators believe may have been Nimrod in these mythologies. So he's got quite a life of his own that has grown from these biblical stories, and we may very well never know what of any of this was true of him, or even who he was if he was known outside of the Bible. The IVP commentary notes that interpreters over the years have attempted to identify Nimrod with known historical figures such as Tikulti Ninorta I, an Assyrian king during the period of the biblical judges, or with Mesopotamian deities such as Ninurta, a warrior god and patron of the hunt, who in one myth hunts down a number of fantastic creatures and defeats or kills them. In Genesis, however, Nimrod is clearly a human hero, rather than divine or even semi-divine. Late Jewish tradition, picked up occasionally by church fathers, envisioned him as the builder of the Tower of Babylon and the originator of idolatry, but these ideas have no basis in the text. The extension of his kingdom from southern Mesopotamia to northern Mesopotamia corresponds to the growth of the first known empire in history, the dynasty of Agad, ruled by Sargon and Naram-Sin, about 2300 BC. Among the greatest of the heroic kings of old, Nimrod's kingdom included Erech, or Uruk, the city where Gilgamesh reigned and one of the oldest and greatest centers of Sumerian culture." End quote. So you can see how this guy's reign would have been very important. It's tying to other key characters from the Bible and from other mythologies. Now, Nimrod and his descendants form these cities, these regions, these mini empires that become important in the biblical story. The first one in verse 10 says that the beginning of his kingdom was at, now most translations will say Babel, but that is the word Babylon. We'll get into more about why that is next week, but just realize that he is the progenitor of the Babylonian people. Erech and Akkad are connected to that. Kalna, no one really knows where this Kalna would be, so some translators think that this should actually be accented slightly different in Hebrew, and it would then go from being a place name to actually just saying 
all of them. So rather than saying the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Edek, Akkad, Kalna, and the land of Shinar, it would be the beginning of his kingdom was Babylon and Edek and Akkad and all of them in the land of Shinar. And that is very possible and could fit very easily with just a slightly different vowel pointing. Before I go any further, I also want to note that when Nimrod is called a mighty hunter, that word mighty is the same word gibor that is used in Genesis 6 of the mighty men of old that are descended from the sons of God, and also of how the waters in the flood, I think this was in chapter 8, possibly 9, how they were mighty over the land. So Nimrod is being hyperlinked back to these semi-divine demigods from mythology that show up in Genesis 6. Shinar is often the Hebrew word used for the area of Babylon. Verse 11 talks about the land of Ashur, and that is the word that is usually translated Assyria in the rest of the Bible. So much like with Mitzrayim, this is a case where I wish they would have just said Assyria, because nobody really knows what Ashur is when they're reading this, but that is Assyria. And there's another translation question that shows up here, because Rehebot, or sometimes Rehebot Ir, depending on your translation, literally just means the broad streets of a city, according to the Net Bible notes. So rather than seeing that as its own city, a lot of scholars think that it might just be referring to the suburb areas around Nineveh. So it's not that Nineveh is a city, Rehebot is a city, but it's that he built Nineveh and the suburbs around the city. So it should be translated instead of transliterated as the King James and many English Bibles do here. Now regarding Nineveh, you'll notice the designation that it is a great city. This is verse 12. And resin between Nineveh and Kala, the same is a great city. Only twice in scripture do we have a designation of great city being used, and both times are about Nineveh. Here, and then again in Jonah. And the start of Jonah maps onto the table of nations here. And we don't have time to get into it. I'm sure we'll probably do a Jonah series at some point, and I'll touch on it there. But there are very specific place names mentioned at the beginning of Jonah that you can compare to this chapter here and see how the author of Jonah is hyperlinking back to this chapter. So as we're looking at this whole region that Nimrod started, you should be recognizing these places, especially once we fix their names to be more recognizable. Babel, or Babylon, Asher, or Assyria, Nineveh. These are the big bad guys at the end of the Bible story, or at least the Tanakh at the end of the Old Testament. Assyria and Babylon are the two nations that take Israel into captivity, and they are both here attributed to Nimrod. So this is why he is such a big bad guy in the story, because he was viewed as the ancestor of the people that took Israel into captivity. And of course, as mentioned a few verses back, his uncle would have been Mitzrayim, the ancestor of the Egyptians, who also enslaved Israel at a point in their story. This is why this chapter is so important. It is setting up all of these antagonists for the story later, and along with the hero of the story later on. Now, as we keep going through this list, it's a little hard to detect a pattern, because you could pull up a map and you can search maps online of like Genesis 10, Table of Nations, or something like that. And you'll see a general spread of where these people went. And if you try to trace, it's not really in order. It's not left to right, right to left, clockwise. It, some of them are kind of counterclockwise. Some go sort of clockwise. There's no real rhyme or reason that most people can tell to the order that these names are given. 
and we hit some more problems with it as we continue to move on here because like verse 14 mentions the Kalashim out of whom came Philistim and Kaphtorim. But later passages talk about the Philistines coming from the Kaphtorim people. So there's a little bit of dissonance between some passages here. Several translators think it's actually just a translation issue where you kind of need to reverse the word order and say that the Philistines actually came from where the Kaphtarites lived in the region of Crete. The Net Bible has a note on this, and a lot of translations will just kind of change it around to fit that better, since that's the general consensus on where the Philistines came from. But there is a little debate there just because of the way that verse is written. IVP again notices that there is a mixture of both Semitic and non-Semitic nations that are listed in this, so there's actually a blending between the lines here already, descendants of Shem as we would think of it, but listed in with the descendants of Ham. And then in verse 21, the Net Bible observes that some translations render Japheth as the older brother, understanding the adjective Hagadoi as older, as modifying Japheth. However, they think that should actually modify Shem. So there is some debate about what the birth order was of Noah's sons. And I think I touched on that when they were first mentioned back in chapter 6. But just reminding you of that here, that while most would say that Japheth is the older, some would actually argue that Shem may have been older. In verse 23, we find a little bit of a hyperlink to the book of Job, because the first of the children of Aram listed is Uz. And you might remember that the story of Job began with a man in the land of Uz. Verse 25 introduces us to the man Aver, and it is from Aver's name that we get the word Hebrew to describe the Jewish people. So this is where we start getting into the people that we know. And Aver has two sons listed. One is going to go in the direction of Babylon, and the other, as we trace it down, leads us to Abraham. So again, we have hyperlinks to later on in the story. So he has one son named Peleg, and the text reads, This was because in his days the earth was divided. Now, there is no further explanation there, so this becomes a matter of debate of what exactly does that mean that the earth was divided in the days of Peleg. The Net Bible says the expression the earth was divided may refer to dividing the land with canals, but more likely it anticipates the division of languages at Babel, Genesis 11. The verb Peleg, separate or divide, is used in Psalm 55.9 for a division of languages, end quote. IVP jumps in and says, while this has traditionally been taken to refer to the division of the nations at the Tower of Babylon, other possibilities exist. It could, for instance, refer to a division of human communities into sedentary farmers and pastoral nomads. Or possibly a migration of peoples is documented here that drastically transformed the culture of the ancient Near East, perhaps one represented in a break-off group traveling southeast in Genesis 11 too. End quote. So there is no full consensus on what exactly it means that the earth was divided. I think most scholars are going to point to the Genesis 11 Tower of Babylon incident. That is not clearly stated in the text. I think that is the most likely, just because there is no other real connection in the biblical story that you could make of the earth being divided. Some uh, creation science type people would suggest that this might be related to the Pangea theory, that you know you have this one supercontinent, and then eventually the Americas broke off from the rest of the continents. So they think that maybe this is what it means, that the Earth was divided in those days. But we have to remember, Earth just means land or region. 
they weren't thinking of the globe as a whole. So I don't think that's very likely at all what it was talking about. There may very well have been a supercontinent way back in the day, but I don't think that's what this verse is talking about. I think it's most likely just referring to either people splitting off from each other, as was already happening, like we talked about in the first few verses here, or possibly the later on Tower of Babylon incident. Verse 29 mentions Havilah again, and this is a link back to Eden because that was mentioned in chapter 2 as a place where there was gold. Now, interestingly enough, Ophir, which is mentioned right after Havilah, becomes associated with gold in the rest of the Bible. So it's kind of like a hyperlink back to where Havilah was mentioned before, and then a hyperlink forward with a new place that also has gold, and that is Ophir. Now notice where these descendants of Aver through Jaktan, the other son, go. Verse 30 says, Their dwelling was from Misha, as you go to Sephar, a mount of the east. Now, if you've been listening to our earlier series on Genesis 1 through 6, you know that anything going east in the Bible is not good. And mountains in the Bible are usually where the gods were believed to have lived. So people going to live in the mountains of the east is not a good sign. This is saying that they are idolaters and that they are walking farther and farther away from where Yahweh was located. But verse 31 turns it around by saying these are the sons of Shem after their families, after their tongues, in their lands, after their nations. These are the families of Noah, after their generation, in their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. So this finishes the genealogy that was all the way back in chapter 6 when we were first introduced to Noah. This caps off that whole thing. And then we're going to get a little bit more of it at the end of next week. But before we get there, we have a big story that I know you are all waiting for at this point with the Tower of Babylon. So that will certainly be a fun discussion next week. Before we close out for the week, I want to draw attention to something that the Bible Project has brought up and I think is really insightful and helpful. Because Christians sometimes use terminology that sounds biblical, and maybe it was even taken from the Bible initially, but the way it ends up being used over the course of time strays farther and farther away from the initial meaning that God intended. And a good example of this is the idea of people being elect. This conversation begins around this point in the scriptures, because when we get to the end of chapter 11, we're going to be introduced to Abraham as a character. And he is chosen by God to be the conduit through which salvation, healing, deliverance comes. And that word elect basically just means chosen. And there comes from this all different kinds of theologies about the people that God chooses. And it can really become this whole thing of insiders versus outsiders. If you are elect by God, you are the chosen. You are special. You are ordained to be saved. You are the person that God cares about enough to send to heaven, and everybody else is chosen for the opposite, to be cursed by God, to be damned in hell. But that's not the picture that the Bible presents. Yes, there are certain people who are elect or chosen by God, but it isn't a matter of who's in or who's out of heaven. It's a matter of what God is trying to accomplish for a particular task. Imagine a sports team where they have a particular play that they have to make in order to score a goal. The different players have different roles, and someone is going to take point on that. They're going to be leading this. They are going to be the one to shoot the puck, throw the ball, kick the ball, do whatever they have to do. 
it might be the captain, it might be someone else, but they are the ones chosen for that. They are elect to make that play happen. But does that mean that then the rest of the players on the field aren't needed? No, not at all. That one player couldn't do it all by himself, but not everybody there can do the exact same thing. So we need people to be doing different roles in order for the goal to be accomplished, or in this case, the goal to be made. It's kind of the same way with election in the Bible. It's not about, oh, I chose you, you are elect, everyone else can quite literally just go to hell. No, it's talking about God had a particular plan in place that he wanted to get the world back to him. He wanted to get humanity back to an Eden-like relationship with him. And in order to accomplish that, he had to laser focus through a particular family. But that does not mean that anyone who wasn't a part of that family is therefore an enemy of God. Here's where Bible Project jumps in. They point out that God keeps choosing one out of the many. Look at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David. Why does God keep choosing these particular people? It's not working, and none of them are very upstanding moral examples. In fact, the narratives of every one of those chosen figures is going to highlight for the reader huge moral failings. So to be the elect does not mean that you are righteous and good. What that means is that the people who aren't chosen are not wicked and evil in the story. In other words, this is not a story about the good guys and the bad guys, the chosen and the non-chosen. God's election of a person or family instead of others is never merited. Frequently, God's chosen people live just as immorally as everyone else. The biblical authors remind us again and again that elect does not equal righteous, nor does unchosen equal unrighteous. Because the chosen people keep failing to bring God's blessing to others, God often elevates from the non-chosen nations to bring blessing to the chosen. For example, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, is a Kenite from the line of Cain in Exodus 18. Jael, who crushes the head of Sisera, is a Canaanite from Cain in Judges 4 and 5. Ruth is a Moabite from Lot in the book of Ruth. Caleb is a Kenizzite from Esau in Numbers 14. Rahab the prostitute is a Canaanite from Ham in Joshua 2. David is from the line of Judah and Caleb and thus part Kenizzite from Esau. God chooses the elect to be the vehicle of the future seed through whom he will save all of humanity. But it is often the non-elect who trust Yahweh. To be non-elect, then, does not mean you are outside of God's mercy. These stories show us that a person's ethnicity plays no part in their value to God. What matters most to God is how we choose to relate to him. End quote and amen. Well, I hope you have enjoyed our study here of chapter 10. This was a little unorthodox in the way that we went about it and talked more just through the significance of these sorts of passages, but I thought that would be a little more entertaining to you than just going through a list of hard-to-pronounce names. And I hope that when you come to passages like this in the future, you'll not be so quick to turn the page and find the next story that you're familiar with. Now, when you first look into these sorts of things, these connections aren't going to just jump off the page at you. But with enough careful study and the right resources, you'll begin to notice the patterns that the biblical authors are trying to have you connect. So a great way that you can go about this, if you are studying a passage like this, like let's say you're looking at Genesis 10, you can look online and see if anyone has information on the significance of the passage. 
You can look at good commentaries like Robert Alter's or the IVP Bible Backgrounds Commentary, things that aren't just going to try to give you a devotional take-home moral for the day, but that are actually going to dig into the text itself and the background to that culture that you probably don't know. And then you also have notes in a good study Bible, something like the Net Bible or certain others that actually, again, dig into the culture. So not so much devotional style stuff that's just trying to give you a moral or the sort of thing that you've heard in church, but the actual culture behind the text, the stuff that you don't know that you don't know. That's what you're looking for when you're studying a passage like this. And we have a resources section on our website that gives suggested resources, reading material, articles, books, sometimes commentaries, podcasts, videos, all sorts of different things for a full array of different topics. And I know that on the website right now, there's a few different lists of recommended commentaries and resources from Bible scholars that I respect and appreciate. So those are the sorts of things you could look at if you say, I don't know where to begin. Well, look those up. I know on the website, we have Mike Heiser's list of commentaries that he recommended. I also have a link that takes you to Lagos.com, and they have recommended resources for every book of the Bible. You can also go on bestcommentaries.com, and they will show you what different people from all over the internet have decided are some of the best commentaries available for any given book of the Bible. So hopefully this helps to pique your interest in the kind of passage that you might have been tempted to overlook before. And hopefully the next time you come across a passage like this, you'll think that there's something that you can get out of it and be encouraged to dig deeper into the text. Next week, we are going to round out our main part of this series. We're going to finish out with chapter 11. And the main portion of that is going to be the Tower of Babylon incident. This is going to really fascinate you, I promise. It's going to be an angle on that story that you have never heard before. You are going to learn more about that tower and what it was and why they built it and what the significance would have been than you had ever heard before. So be sure to tune in then. And until then, stay curious and keep asking questions about the Uncut and Unfiltered Bible. You've been listening to the Bible Uncut and Unfiltered. We hope we provided a healing place to discuss the questions you can't ask and the context you won't learn in church. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you take a minute to share it with a friend? You could also rate and review on your podcast app. If you'd like to donate to keep our work going, you can go to our website, thebibleuncut.com, and click on the Support Us tab. While you're there, check out the recommended resources and blog where we post show notes and other articles. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.